This morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 8. So you can start opening up your Bibles. We are going to be looking and walking through Psalm 8. So in uh, the year 2005, at 26 years of age, yours truly attended a law enforcement stress academy. And I've said this before, but I want to draw an illustration from this experience that I had. And um, from day one to the final day, my life was consumed with long distance uh, running. And in our part of our training, we would run whether it was raining, rain or shine, cold or hot, with, with aches and pains and bruises, we would go out for long distance workouts and specifically long distance r- uh, running. And in the, as part of this training, as part of our running, uh, we would sing cadence as a, as a, as a class to one another. Um, most importantly, most, uh, the one that really stands to mind or comes to my remembrance is we would constantly call out the foot that we should be running or walking in, left, 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 righty, leo. And you hear the class saying, repeating the same thing. Now, during these, uh, the, <clears throat> these six months of training, our academy staff would frequently try to find words to encourage us as we were beat down, as we were... Uh, weak, frail, and feeling unable to accomplish such monumental tasks. And they would say the following, be stronger than your excuses. They would say, the only bad workout is the one you didn't do. When we would complain about running in the rain, they would say the following, running in the rain, exercise, therapy, and a shower all at the same time. (laughs) When we would uh, complain about running at a slow pace, They would say, slow or fast, a mile is a mile. They would also say, good things come to those who sweat. When we would complain about being bruised and injured, they would say, someone bruisier than you is working out right now. And lastly, the one that stands out is, don't worry if you think you are slow. You are still quicker than everyone who's sitting at home doing nothing. And I like that one. Now, the reason why I bring this up, because about a month and a half ago, maybe two months ago, I had to go back to that same training academy. But now, 18 years later, things were a lot different. You see, as Jake so accurately described two weeks ago, I am getting older. Can I hear an amen to that truth? I am getting older. But this time, I could sense the effects of aging in my body. Make no mistake, Jake, you're in children's, but you'll listen to this. The scoffers and naysayers. I was still able to run and keep up with the young academy class. Amen to that. But deep down in my heart of hearts, I knew that it was completely different. I was hurting. I was aching. As a matter of fact, I would call, after the long runs, I would call my wife and say, honey, this is, this is a lot harder than what I remember. Um, but what still remained was the following in that training program. There's still the cadence and the running and the repeating of phrases back and forth. Um, in the cold, in the rain, they're doing so because they want us to focus on our breathing, keeping the mind engaged, keeping, keeping you aware of what's being said. And it, furthermore, it unites you with that group. It creates that group mentality, that group think, if you will, keeps us all together because everybody is in that same position, in that same struggle. And the same is true. The reason why I bring this up, because the same is true with congregational singing. You see, if you have not picked it up yet, the book of Psalms, which we'll be looking at today, chapter eight, highlights the importance of corporate singing. It highlights the importance of lyrical content in our singing. And I know that as a church, you're beginning to sense the following. There is something unique about uh, that. There's something unique when our voices come together to sing praises to our king. Would you agree? There's something there's something unique about that. And I've said it before and I'll continue saying it because it's true. Our church here in Faith Bible Church Menifee is a singing church, which means that the saints sing out loud because they sing out of a heart of thanksgiving. You see, as we sing together, as we sing scriptural truth, which 
By the way, thank Patrick for singing Psalm 8 this morning. We're singing scriptural truth to one another. This is meant to serve as a means of encouragement. It also helps us to teach one another. It also causes us to focus <clears throat> on what is being said, what is being proclaimed, rather than merely focusing on your current experience, be it your current sin, your current struggles. You see, the default position is the following, at least the default position of my heart. You might be holier. You might have uh, the edge on me. You might have victory in this area where I don't. My default position is to only focus on myself, on my current emotional state. And that is why here in the praise ministry, we don't get it right all the time. But this is our heart. This is our desire. We don't want to get up here and ask you the following question. How are you feeling this morning? I don't want to ask you that question when we're leading praise. And I'll, ask, and I'll tell you why. I don't. How are you doing this morning? How are you feeling? You know why? Because a lot of us are struggling. Can I hear an amen to that truth? And if I'm honest, I've said this before. For some of us on Sunday morning, this particular Sunday morning, you are like a piece of Ikea furniture. You know what that is. You're barely holding it together. <laughs> but if I were to ask that question honestly, or you were to answer that question honestly, this might be true of you. How am I doing today, Danny? Well, I'm irritable. I'm working night shift. I've had no sleep. I'm hungry. I woke up late today. I didn't have breakfast. I'm tired because I didn't sleep well. I'm currently depressed because I didn't eat and I didn't, I didn't sleep well last night. I'm anxious about tomorrow. I'm worried about my current season in life. I'm struggling with my sinful thoughts, my passions against, that are warring against God. I have broken fellowship with my bride. I'm dealing with rebellious teens. I'm dealing with lazy coworkers. I'm remaining under a domineering boss. I just kicked my dog on the way to church this morning. I forgot my Bible. And are you asking me how am I doing this morning? Well, I'm doing great. So rather than focus on our current emotional state, our trials, our struggles, our temptations, we intentionally come together to focus all of our attention, not partially, all of our attention on him who is greater than our current circumstances. And when we sing, we, we, our desire is to have one heart, to have one mind, to utilize one melody, to, uh, to sing one message, to sing together, all the men, all the women, all the children coming together collectively, the voices coming together, offering praise to Yahweh, who is our Lord. You see, saying sometimes we have the wrong view of corporate singing. We look at it as a filler. It's just taking up the first 10, 15 minutes of our service. I'll, um, it, but let me correct that thinking. Uh, corporate singing is an active part of our corporate worship. It's not meant to just prep your heart, which it does do that. It's not solely meant to prime the pump to get you in the spiritual zone. It's not meant for that. And if it's not for that, I would ask you and I beg you not to treat it as such. Some of you might say, I'll just arrive a few minutes late. It's just worship. It's just the singing of old hymns. It's just Danny. It's just Patrick. They're singing the same hymns that I know already. There's no stage lights, no fog machines, no lasers, no expensive sound systems, no choirs, no robes. Give me the robes. Give me the robes. No, congregational singing involves you, but it's not solely about you. By his grace, he allows you to be involved in singing praises to his name, but it is solely about God and who he is. Can I hear an amen? Our heart here in Menifee is the following. We want to codify which means we want to sing scriptural truth to one another. We want to edify, which means we want to build each other up as our voices come together. Though we're struggling, we don't want to focus on that. We want to focus on his glory and his majesty and his dominion. We want to glorify. We want to lift praises to his name. So I hope that you start seeing the necessity, why we need you here on time, singing truth to one another, not for my sake, but for those that are around you, those that need to hear your voices coming together. Colossians 3.16 says the following, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, 
singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Israel's greatest hits, track number eight, which is Psalm 8. And if you look at it, Psalm 8 could be best summarized as praise given to the magnificent, to the marvelous, to the majestic king. And it it starts off with an inspired notation. Take a look at it. And it says the following, to the choir master, according to the gittith, or gittith, a psalm of David. So what do we learn from this as we look at this instruction or this notation at the top of the psalm? We know for sure that it was written by David. And it was written for the choir master. And I've said this in our study of Psalm 4. And I'll say it again. Some scholars have suggested that the translation, the choir master, is not wholly accurate, but it could also be translated to, and furthermore, unto the end, perpetually, or to the eternal one. It could also be translated to the victor, to the conqueror, to the giver of victory. So now I want you to consider this notation. This song was meant, this inspired notation at the top of Psalm 8 was meant to be sung by the nation of Israel, by the Christians throughout the centuries, should be sung to the end or to the end, to the eternal one, to the victor, to the conqueror. So let's look at Psalm 8, but before we do so, it also says, according to the getith. What does that mean, Danny? Well, I'm glad you asked this morning. Scholars have suggested that a katith is following a very particular tuning. It could mean a chord progression, or most importantly, it could mean a specific melody, melody rather, from the region of Gath. Gath meaning the wine press. And if you know your Bible history, that is the very location where David faced Goliath and he was triumphant. So st- scholars have suggested that this psalm, Psalm 8, was written immediately after the defeat of Goliath. After this major victory, David writes the following. So please open up your Bibles and follow me as I read Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemies and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Please pray with me. Father God, as we look at this ancient song, I pray that we would marvel over your greatness, that we would be awestruck as we see how great you truly are, that we would focus all our attentions and bow in complete worship and complete obedience to the great and marvelous King of Kings. I pray that Psalm 8 would encourage our hearts this morning. This I pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Look at verse 1 with me again. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And I want you to consider the following, that this hymn of praise, this psalm of praise written by David to the eternal one, to the choir master, starts off with point number one, if you have an outline. It starts off because David forces us to contemplate God's majesty. Psalm 8 forces us to contemplate God's majesty, his greatness, 
You see, the Church of England would read this text as, O Lord, our governor, Jehovah, our ruler, Jehovah, our sovereign. And I want you to think about that for a moment. O Lord, our governor. Currently in politics, there's a highlight. highlight uh, there's a, they're highlighting differences in governorships and certain states, uh, governors running their states well and others not running them as well as they could. And I have a friend who lives in Florida and I call him every so often. And he always asks me, hey, how are things back home? Because he's from California. And I ask him, what do you mean? We're great. He's like, no, you guys are in California. I'm like, oh, things are great. And they're like, no, we love our governor here in Florida. Things are great over here. I want you to consider this. The, uh, the church of England would say, oh, Lord, our governor, the one that rules us, that controls us. And that should be our heart. That should be our sentiment when we read this psalm. Oh, Lord, or oh, Yahweh, our Lord. We would say our commander, our captain. We just sang a few moments ago. Oh, church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ, our captain. What a great truth. But I want you to notice David's words. Oh, Lord, or Yahweh, our Adonai. Yahweh is a covenantal name. And he says, our Lord, which means that this is an intimate relationship. Yahweh is our Lord. He's not just far off, unreachable, unrelatable. David is affirming in the introduction as he starts off singing and teaching the song to the nation of Israel that there is a special bond, there is a special relationship that David had with, has or had with his majestic, marvelous God. You see, God, he is alone. He is above, uh, you can't compare him with anyone else. He is creator, we are not. He is wise, we are foolish. He is mighty, we are weak. He is eternal, we are transient. Yet he is our own. And he is intimate, related with us. Look at it again. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Majestic, what does that mean? Your name is awesome. We use that word too lightly currently. You're awesome. You're august. You're ceremonious. You're dignified. You're elevated. Exalted, far greater than we can comprehend. And as we think, I want you to uh, as we look at what David wrote under divine inspiration, we should start developing a, a, a sense of the reality of the radiance and splendor of our God. This, in return, should create a heart of humility in all of us. You see, saints, when we start contemplating God's divine glory as revealed in Scripture, as we see His creative power also revealed in nature, as we will see in a few moments, when our eyes are clearly set on him, the only thing we're left to do is shout praises to his name. Can I hear an amen to that truth? Because we will ultimately run out of words to express how great he truly is. You see, David had witnessed God's faithfulness. David had experienced God's faithfulness, delivering him from the beast, from the lion, from the bear, and possibly now from this nine foot six inch giant. And he's able to write, oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name? How majestic is your name? What did he mean by your name? I've said this before. Your name, David was uh, simply suggesting or telling us or teaching us the name being everything that encompasses who he is, the sum of all of God's attributes. That what clearly defines who he is, what makes God, God. So think about that for a moment. What makes God, God, his holiness, his love, his mercy, his compassion, his grace, his wrath, his righteousness, his, him being eternal, his immutability. If you need to brush up on who God is, there's a great resource, The Attributes of God, but by Arthur W. Pink. 
I encourage you to read it. But if you look at verse one, uh, uh, Psalm one, uh, Psalm eight, verse one again, David is saying that Yahweh is far greater than the earth. Look at it, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! Your your name is found everywhere on earth. And then he says, "You have set your glory above the heavens. His glory, His weightiness." surpasses all that is created here on earth. And he takes it a step further and he says, and it's even far greater than the heavens. And David did not know the distance of the heavens. We to this day do not know the distance of the heavens. Yet David writes under divine inspiration, who you are, your glory, your weightiness is above the heavens and the heavens have no end, which means that your glory, your majesty has no end either. That should encourage us all. I did a little bit of research. Trust me, I'm not that knowledgeable. But this is what I found. That the moon is 238,900 miles away. Sorry, I said that wrong. That's very, very, very difficult to say. And very far away from me. The sun is 93 million miles away. The closest star is Proxima Centauri, 4.24 light years away. Don't ask me how far that is, kids. It's far. It's 500.88 trillion miles away. So I want you to do this when you leave this building this morning. When you walk out this blessed Sunday morning, and as you're fellowshipping with the other saints, as you feel the heat on your skin, as you see the, the bright sun and you shield it with your fancy sunglasses, I want you to consider that that sunlight that you're feeling and that you're shielding your eyes from traveling at 671 million miles per hour left the sun eight minutes ago and you're barely feeling it. So the next time you start doubting God, go outside. Just look up. Look up. And my hopes is that in light of Psalm 8, you would also say the same thing that David said. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is David's hope, and this is my hope this morning, that you would also, and that I would also fall and be awestruck with the greatness of our God. You see, saints, all scripture points us to God. Every verse points us to God. But Psalm 8 specifically serves as a telescope magnifying God for us. You see, this information, this number, this distance that I just gave you right now, absent the work of God of the Holy Spirit in your heart, will only give you scientific numbers, will only give you data, it will only feed your pride, it will feed your arrogance, your self-sufficiency. It will not give you a heart of praise and thanksgiving or consider God's majesty. Because we need the work of God working in our hearts for us to fall on our knees to realize that our God is awesome, that we completely need Him. You see, human, men, uh, human sinful men reject God. They resist God. They suppress the idea of God. A much older uh, saint said the following, quote, astronomy is sublime. It takes our contemplation to the boundless fields of space. It shows us creation. Theology is far greater, for it takes us... Past the furthest star, it takes us directly to the very presence of God, end quote. See, astronomy shows us nature and creation, but theology shows us nature's author. Amen. And it shows us who Yahweh truly is. Verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemies and the avengers. Look at that verse again. What is David saying here? Babies. Infants, well, allow me to suggest that David is stating that God uses the small. He uses the weak. He uses the feeble to shame the strong. If you're in doubt, the Apostle Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, there on your outline. For consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. You feel encouraged? This is Paul saying it, not me. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Christian, the next time you meditate on God's effectual calling on your life, you're admitting, you're admitting the following. I'm not wise. I'm not powerful. I'm not of royal blood, of noble birth. I'm lowly. I'm insignificant. I'm nothing. I'm poor. I'm desperate. I'm destitute. I'm needy. I'm a spiritual beggar. I'm a bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt man or a spiritually bankrupt woman. And this is what Christ said in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which you've heard me say many, many, many times ago, or many times over and over again. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the weak, the feeble. And now David is saying the same thing out of the mouth of babes and infants, the weak and the feeble. You are strong. So why does God work this way? Because salvation is completely an act of God. He does not need our efforts. He accomplishes his will. I want you to analyze this for a moment, that it is God the one who is strong and highlighted in this passage in Psalm 8. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. It is God who fights for us. It is God who provides victory. It is God who sustains us. It is God who is able to accomplish when we are unable. Some of you might be discouraged this morning feeling, I just don't measure up as a husband. I don't measure up as a wife. I don't measure up as a Christian. I don't measure up as a son. I don't measure up as a daughter. I don't measure up as a citizen. I don't measure up as an employee. And the answer is, no, you don't. Welcome to Faith Bible Church Menifee. But our blessed hope is that when we are weak, he is able. Can I hear any men to that truth? Jeremiah 9, verse 23 says the following. Thus says the Lord. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let, let not the rich man boast in his riches. Verse 24, but let him boast, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, uh, delight declares the Lord. Let's look at verse 2 again. Psalm 8, verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemies and the avenger. Look at it again. It is only in God's economy that an army of weak, suckling babies are powerful. Those that are weak and vulnerable are more powerful than a heavily armed militia. I want you to think about that truth. Now, this, this seems a bit infantile. This, this, this seems a bit absurd and irrational. But take a look and consider what you know to be true about God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. Think about Moses delivering the nation of Israel at 80 years of age with a speech impediment. And he came against the most powerful dynasty of his day, and God gave him the victory. And in the same way, think about the good news of the gospel, that Christ says that he's able to deliver us from the wrath of God, uh, from the consequences and the punishment of sin and death. How does he do so? By the foolishness and the folly, the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, salvation is not left to your works, your traditions. You've heard this before, to your religion, to your performance, to your rituals, to your ceremonies. Salvation is solely in Christ's finished work on the cross for his own. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 18 says the following, For the word of the cross is folly, foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. As John Calvin was reading this psalm, he, comment, uh, he commented the following. He said, babes and suckling are the invisible champions of God. Think about that. Again, God uses the weak, he uses the feeble. Furthermore, I was encouraged that as I was studying Psalm 8, Christ, the Word made flesh, quoted Psalm 8 in Matthew 21, 16 as 
he was cleansing the temple from unrighteousness, as he was healing the sick, and as he was doing all this in the temple, the children were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And in Matthew 21, 16, is there on your outline, the Pharisees, the scribes, high priests and all, the bunch came up to Christ and said, verse 16, and they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you not read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Christ directly quoting David, specifically Psalm 8. So in doing so, why is Christ uh, quoting Psalm 8? Well, he's acquainted with the writings. He is the word made flesh, explaining the written word of God. But in doing so, Christ is claiming to be God, for he's receiving the praises of the children. He didn't silence the children. He let them continue shouting Hosanna. But furthermore, he provided an injunction against the Pharisees. Because now... He rightly identified them as being the enemies and the avengers. Let's look at Psalm 8, verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So after he contemplates, after David contemplates on the majesty of God and how great and wonderful and, and, and awesome that he truly is. David shifts, and now point number two, he contemplates man's worth. See, as David rightly analyzes creation, along with an intimate knowledge that he has of God, now he has clear perspective of who he is. And David is humbled. He realizes that we truly are nothing. God is majestic. He is a creator, and we are not. And then he says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, he says, your heavens, your fingers, and you have set in place. It is all because of God. Colossians further reminds us that it is Christ by him, for by him all things were created in, he in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 3 says, when I look at your heavens, count the pronouns, when the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have set in place, now, we know this, that our God is spirit. He has no hands, he has no fingers. But why did David say such things? See, when he says this, he's describing human motor skills, which were known to his audience, which were known to you and I. But he's using familiar human functions to teach us and highlight the intricate detail, the design, the purpose, the precision, the fine motor skills, everything that took place in creating uh, the heavens and the earth. Theologically, we know, and David also knew this because he was acquainted with the book of Genesis, that God spoke these things into creation. But David wants us to sense God's greatness, and he wants us to feel that God is uh, closer to us than what we really imagine, that God is relatable to us, that he has hands, that he has fingers, and that he took careful consideration to create the heavens and the earth. And he wants us to consider that Yahweh is closer to us, and that he is relatable to us, and that he is our Lord. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The Puritan John Trapp wrote the following. Listen, please. Quote, sorry, sickly man, a mass of mortalities, a map of miseries, a mixture of compound of dirt and sin. And yet God is mindful of him. He not only takes care of him in an ordinary way as he does other creatures, but he singularly attends and affects him as a father does his dearest child, end quote. What is man? What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man 
that you care for him? What a great question. And then he continues in verse 5 and he writes, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Some translation might say angels. And they're both accurate. David is saying that mankind is created a little lower than angels. And if you know anything about angels, they are mighty. They're doing the Lord's work. 2 Kings 19.35 described for us that in a night, an angel was able to strike down 185,000 soldiers, Assyrian soldiers, one night, one angel. And David is saying the following, that God created man and woman, mankind, just slightly lower than angels. I want you to consider this truth. That David did not write, you, he did not write the following. You made man slightly above animals. He said, a little lower than the angels. See, this statement, a little lower than the angels, it's meant for us to look up to God rather than to look down to the animal world to try to find our purpose. I want you to think about that. Uh, think about this. Mankind is striving to find their purpose in many things. They're trying to find their identity in other things, lesser things, in every place under the sun and in everyone but in God. They're seeking to find their purpose, their identity. People finding their identity in their kids and their wife and their marriage and their family and their careers and their education and their wealth and their political ideation and their social agendas. And yes, in our, in our, in our current um, time, finding their identity and their sexuality. They try to find everything and everything under the sun except to finding it in God. Let me tell you that everything will fail man except God. And consider David's word. Though we are a little lower than angels, he reminds us that we are members of the human race and therefore we have been crowned with glory and honor. How are we crowned with glory and honor? Well, allow me to give you that answer. We're crowned with glory and honor because you and I, all the members of the human race, are image bearers. And that's not contingent whether you're a believer or not. All human life has worth. Can I hear an amen? See, the value of human life is the glory and honor because we are all, we are all image bearers. I have to say this. Scripture teaches that human life is far greater than animal life. David wrote this under divine inspiration, stressing the importance of human worth. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Saints, this is true. It is only scripture that will accurately describe our fallen condition, our human condition. You see, God's human condition reminds us that we're slightly lower than angels. And a description of our spiritual condition is not too flattering. Why? Because we're sinners, we're bankrupt, we're dead in our sins, unable to save ourselves. But it is true. God's assessment of us is true. And it, though it might offend you this morning, it's still true. You see, when God proclaimed these truths through the prophets and through the apostles, he did not submit his, his words to a committee that would censor his words for him. But he spoke <clears throat> accurately and truthfully. You see, it is only when we see God clearly that we will be able to see human worth and the value of human life. The current social trend is this. Sinful man stands at odd with the truth of Psalm 8. You see, sinful man is refusing to look up to Yahweh, our Lord, and confessing him as Lord. Therefore, they hate human life. Sinful man will reject that we're slightly lower than angels, accountable to a sovereign God. But they're quick to promote that we're slightly sophisticated and evolved primates. Sinful man states having no creator. 
We came from nothing. We are nothing. We're nothing more than cosmic dust. We have journeyed from primordial goo to the zoo to you. No wonder why you have foolish men behaving like animals. Men senselessly murdering one another for change, having no regard for human life, no consideration for others, only living to appease instinct, having no restraints, no boundaries, no sense of right or wrong, no morality, no God. Depraved men not respecting men, children, but only pursuing their lusts. I have to say this, you know this very well. Our culture seeks to promote death. And currently many scholars, the educated, the elite, the scoffers, the mockers, the skeptics, the deniers of scriptures, they want to deny, they want to deny life in the womb, saying that it's but a clump of cells, it's just a tumor, it's just a growth. But human, scripture has taught us that it's crowned with glory and majesty. Do you see in their humanistic approach, they want to relegate life to viability, independence, or having the ability to think, being sentient. Scripture, however, values all human life, for all human life bears an image of our great and wonderful God. Can I hear an amen to that truth? I'm not exaggerating this point. That is why currently there is so much intense effort in destroying human life as early as possible. And if they're not successful in killing human life in the womb, they try to eradicate gender distinctives between men and women. And I know as I say this, you're going to be drawn to political sides, and I'm not here to remind you of political agendas. I'm here to remind you the following, that according to Genesis 1, which David was very acquainted when he wrote Psalm 8, Moses wrote, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And they both have, they're both image bearers. But I want to remind you this, that though it might appear that we're losing the battle. We already covered track two. You guys remember track two? Who remembers track two? Which is Psalm two. One hand went up. I'm encouraged because now it's two of us that remembers track two. You got to go back and listen to it. Christ wins. The anointed one wins. Though nations rage and they conspire and they collude and they say, let us rip these bonds from, from us. Let's rip these restraints from us. These old traditions from us. Christ wins. And that should encourage your heart. Look at verse 5 again. You have made him a little lower than heavenly beings and crowned him with glory. And honor. Another interesting fact is that the author of Hebrews quotes this very psalm and it's there in your outline. Take a look at it. Except that the author of Hebrews did not, did not attribute it, the authorship to David. I'm sure David's okay with that. And in verse 6, he says, It has been testified somewhere. Verse 7, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels, yet you have crowned him with glory and honor. And it goes on. I'm just going to read those two verses. But the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8, and he directly applies it to Christ as Christ, Christ takes on human form, highlighting that Christ was fully God and fully man. Christ was also in human form, slightly lower than the angels for a season, for a reason, for, for a short little while while he did his ministry here on earth. And I want you to consider this. If you keep reading Hebrews, they'll tell you that we don't see it fully yet. As you look, earth is falling apart. There's a lot of things wrong in, in our world right now. But the author of Hebrews says that it's just for a little while. But our hope is found that we have to place our hope in Jesus Christ because he's the one that will accomplish all these things. Let me move on with verse 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the flesh of the sea, 
the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the sea. Point number three, if you're still with me, David forces us to contemplate man's responsibility. We can't escape it, men and women, there is responsibility. You see, everything was created by God. Yet in Eden, before the fall, God commissioned Adam and Eve to be stewards, to have dominion, to rule everything that was before them. And for a short season, for a short time period, they did so. But then came the fall. But even after the fall, in the fallen condition, man still exercises dominion and rule over animal life and even over God's creation. Not perfectly, but they still exercise some dominion. And even that is a gracious act of God. But again, we see that fallen man is at odds with this truth. They're unable to display dominion fully and they're stressing out and they're, uh, they become a little overbearing rather than having proper dominion over creation and understanding the balance that God is the one that uh, gave them that stewardship. They worship creation. They worship Mother Earth. They worship the climate. They worship environment rather than worshiping the creator. They continue to fall short in having dominion over creation. They try diligently, but they're continue, continuously failing. And in an effort to subdue creation, they end up subduing man in the process. Extensive policies, procedures, edicts, laws, green zones. But the good news is that where Adam failed, Christ is triumphant. Can I hear an amen? The same is true with you. When you fail, Christ is triumphant. But that does not excuse us from having any responsibility. Verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now David wraps up this song with that same truth which he started off this song. And he's repeating this same triumphant phrase. Lord, you are our Lord. Majesty and glory belong to you and you alone. Point number four, if you're still here with me, as we look at God's majesty, we contemplate his majesty as we look at man's worth and then we see man's responsibility. Point number four, responding or respond with praise. David responds with praise. I'm going to ask you to assess and, assess and analyze your heart. So now as you're sitting here, so how do I respond to this, Danny? How do I respond to this ancient song? It's 3,000 years old. And what do I do now? Well, in addition to being an image bearer, which you are, you might be in a different season in life. Some of you are husbands. Some of you are wives. You're either a son or a daughter. You're a neighbor, employer, employee, a citizen. So how do you respond to that truth that God has already told you clearly in Scripture? As a husband, you're either going to respond in bitterness, anger, and resentment because God is calling you to die to self and to love sacrificially, to love your bride sacrificially and care for her, provide for her? Or are you going to respond with praise that when you fail, Christ is the ultimate husband to emulate? Wives, how are you going to respond to the fact that Scripture has told you to you submit yourself, husband, listen carefully, that is the active responsibility of the wife. She submits herself. Stop trying to submit her. Because in doing so, your prayers are going to be hindered. Wives, you submit yourselves. You don't even have to love us back. Can I hear an amen, ladies? Nowhere in scripture will you, will you find agape or love your husband. But you know what it does say? Real simple. Bible's super practical. Women need to be loved. This is God saying it, not me. And God is also saying this to, uh, to women. Men don't need to be loved. They just need, you just need to submit yourself to your husband and the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Son and daughters, how do I respond to Psalm 8? I'm glad you asked. Submit to your parents. I love that one. 
but you submit as unto the Lord. As a neighbor and a friend, you're going to carry, you're going to serve those people that are around you. If you've been blessed to be an employer, you're going to be, you're going to be kind and generous to your employees. If you're an employee, you're going to work with zeal. You're, going to, you're not going to cut corners. You're going to work diligently as unto the Lord. If you're a citizen, you're going to pray for your leaders rather than bashing your leaders. Remember that we're doing this by His grace because we're nothing more than babes and infants, weak, feeble. And my prayer is that you would respond with a heart of praise. Just like David, I want to leave you focusing here with, oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I'm going to read it one more time to conclude and read it with me and I pray that it would encourage your heart. O oh Lord, out oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you take, that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds in the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Please pray with me. O Lord, our governor, our captain, how splendid, radiant, and marvelous is your name. Your character, your love, your mercy, your grace, your compassion, your faithfulness, your holiness, your omnipotence is beyond comprehension. You are far greater and above all your intricate creation as displayed to us. And as we look at what you've done, we conclude that we are weak we're frail, we're feeble, we're small creatures here on earth. Though we're small and insignificant, you thought of us. And that is truly humbling. And it is we, the weak, the frail, the babes, who offer praises to you, our Lord. As we look up to you, and as you're magnified in our hearts, we see clearly the value of human life and worth. This morning, I pray that we as small creatures would respond posit positively to your word. That we would value other image bearers and show compassion towards them. That we would preach the gospel to them because they are valuable to you. That we would respond to scriptural commands here and now positively with a heart of praise and thanksgiving rather than grumbling and complaining. And if we're defeated, discouraged this morning, that we will look to the one who never fails, the one who was triumphant in all things, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. This I pray in your son's name. Amen.